All right, go ahead, get your Bibles out. We're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter eight. 1 Corinthians chapter eight, and let me get there as well. If you've been with us for a while since uh, before the holidays, you know we've been going verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. This has been a wonderful journey because we have touched on a lot of different themes that are very relevant and might I even say controversial. Now, the reason I think that's wonderful is because most of the controversial issues, those kind of sticky subjects, they're controversial because the Bible has something to say about them. And culture doesn't particularly always like what the Bible has to say about them. And so as Christians, what we want to do is always go back to the Bible and say, we're not going to be afraid to talk about anything. There's no topic that's off limits as a church. We just want to know what the Bible says so we can honor our king. We can honor God and walk in his ways and not according to the ways of the world. Years ago, I was a missionary in Thailand, and uh, I've told this story before, so if, if you remember this story, uh, it's because you're a veteran here at Park South Loop, otherwise it'll be new for you. But years ago, I was living in Thailand as a missionary, and uh, Thailand's this wonderful country, it's got beautiful culture, but part of the culture, actually, is actually deeply rooted in idolatry. It, idolatry. Uh, it, to be Thai is to be Buddhist, that's the, the, the common phrase. Um, and it's a particular form of Buddhism known as Theravada Buddhism. And what that means is there's just lots of idol worship. There's charms all through culture, idol salesmen on virtually every corner. Uh, and, and one of the parts of the idolatry is that on nearly every corner, there's a big temple. You can't go much more than a block or two in a city without coming across a temple with a, a, a large gold statue inside. And when you go by the temple, the expectation is that you are at least going to stop, say a few prayers, bow, and light your incense before the idol. It's part of the culture. I, I know that sounds foreign to us, maybe it doesn't, but to many of you in this room, that probably sounds pretty foreign. But this is as regular in Thailand as it is for us to call an Uber. It's just part of the way that you go about living. You, you, you just, this is what you do. It's behind the scenes information for you. Well, one day it was at church, after church, and uh, there were a handful of new Christians, Thai Christians in the room. And uh, this one sweet young Thai girl, we got in a conversation. She said, I really don't know what to do. She says, I'm a Christian now, but every time my coworkers go out to lunch, we take the walk down the block, and on the way to the chicken shop where we go get our lunch, we stop by the idol statue, and they all get down on their knee, light an incense, and say their prayers. And she said, I don't know what to do, because I feel like if I get down on my knee with them, then I'm worshiping idols, and I don't think I'm supposed to do that. She says, but on the other hand, if I, if I say I'm not going to do that, I'm really going to be outcast. They'll, they'll recognize that I'm not one of them, and likely in the long run, that means losing my friends, that means losing my relationships, probably losing my job. And she said, I just don't know what to do. Fascinating conversation. What do you do when your Christian faith pushes up against the, the, the pagan or idolatrous culture around you? What are the habits that you need to break? What can you do? What can you continue to do? Well, this one Thai Christian young man who was perhaps about a year or two further along in his journey than this young woman said, well, I'll tell you what I do. I'm often in the same situation. He said, every time my office coworkers go by and we're in a group and they all get down on their knee to, to worship the false god, I just get down on my knee and I tie my shoe. I just tie my shoe like this and uh, nobody knows, but in my heart, I'm just going through the motions of tying my shoe. And, uh, and that started this fascinating conversation. Is it okay to tie your shoe in that situation? 
Now, that story is difficult for us to relate to because it's just so foreign. We, we, we can't grasp the cultural nuances and the cultural weight of what it would mean for Thai Christians to wrestle with tying your shoe instead of doing something different when it comes to idols that are on the corner. However, though the, the practical uh, moment is different for us, the principles that we're working through as a church, the principles that we have to live by as Christians in the 21st century are no different. And many of us, if we're really honest, and if we do the cultural reflection and biblical uh, reflection that we need to do today, we'll discover that we ourselves oftentimes tie our shoe. That there's all sorts of these moments throughout our daily walk with Christ where our life is coming in contact with the pagan, idolatrous, secular ways of the world, and what we do is we just try to blend in, tie our shoe, and just try to do it at a different level. And the question before us today is, is that okay? At what point do we need to truly detach ourselves from culture? And at what point do we need to step into culture and say, no, it's okay to kind of go with things? How do Christ and culture mingle? Let me give you some examples. Can Christians go to a yoga studio? What about the culture or the concerts you used to go to before you were a Christian? Can you go to those concerts anymore? What about the parties you used to go to before you were a Christian? Can you continue to go to those parties? What about the holidays you used to celebrate? Can you continue to celebrate them? What about the clothes you wear and what they signify? Can you continue to wear the same clothes that you were wearing before you were a follower of Christ? Now, some of these things, you might look at them and you might say, yoga studio? <laughs> like clothes you wear? Out of, out of sight, out of mind. That, that, that has nothing to do with me and my relationship with Jesus. Like, we're good. But does it? And what I'm going to push on us today is that actually many of the things we take for granted in the culture around us are actually deeply embedded uh, elements of the culture that we need to reflect on and figure out how do Christians properly detach or walk with a, this through Scripture. Now, in today's passage, Paul is dealing with a very similar issue. Again, it's a foreign issue to us. I could read this whole chapter, and you might at first glance say, that has nothing to do with me. And yet, if we look at the principles of it, what you'll find is this has everything to do with us and our daily walk with Jesus, how we live in the 21st century. So what I'm going to try to do is really dig in, what did this mean for them in their first century context, and then what's the principle we can apply to us, and then we'll try to work it through in a practical way. The context of what he's going to be talking about is food offered to idols. What do you do in first century Corinth with food that's been offered to idols. Now, here's my big idea. This is what I want to want you to walk away with today. A desperate desire to build others up in Jesus Christ should drive our Christian ethic. A desperate desire to build others up in Jesus Christ should drive our Christian ethic. Let's dig into this, starting in verses 1 to 3. It reads this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Now, concerning, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
Okay, now let's pause right there. It's a little bit of Yoda speak, if you're following that. It's <laughs> meaning it's a little bit of uh, kind of this broad general principles, but the principles are really important and he lays out a few things for us. He begins, now concerning, now concerning. Now we've gone 1 Corinthians chapter one all the way through chapter seven. And now there's a pivot. He's leaving the previous conversation, which was all around marriage. Last week was on singleness. It was about divorce. And now he's moving to something new. And the new thing he's going to be talking about actually extends all the way from the beginning of chapter 8 through the end of chapter 10. This whole thing is about Christ and culture. And particularly, it's about food offered to idols. Now, what did that have to do in first century culture? How did this work? In first century culture in Corinth, Corinth was pervaded by idolatry, kind of like I described Thailand to be. There were all sorts of different gods that you could worship, all sorts of different ways that you could worship. We've talked about that in terms of the context. It was a port town, so it was an international hub where all these different ideas were coming to play in one city. And when it came to food offered to idols, this was a daily experience for people living there. Here's what would happen. Someone who lived in Corinth, who was not yet a Christian, a pagan living in Corinth, they would from time to time want to offer a sacrifice of meat, something from their flock, to a pagan god, to a foreign god. And so they'd go to the local temple, and the meat could be used in three different ways. First, you could go and you could alt offer your meat sacrifice on an altar, right? And you might bring some buddies with you, make a big deal of this, and this is you're trying to appease the, the, the gods above you. And so you offer some meat onto an altar. After that, then you'd throw a big party with a lot of the meat from the sacrifice. Maybe you offered three, four goats, or you offered a bull, and there was a lot of extra meat. And so you'd throw a party. You'd invite people from your local community. You'd invite some friends. Perhaps if you wanted to rub shoulders with all the right people, you'd invite the right people into this party that you were going to throw. And you'd have a big festival where prayers were said, and you'd just have a party together. And you'd eat all the meat. And then whatever meat was left over would be distributed to all the local butchers in town. And so on any given day, someone living in Corinth would go to the local butchery and there'd be meat that was there. And some of the meat would just be meat that has no idle background to it. But other of the meat mixed into any local butcher shop would have been meat that was offered to a, a local foreign god in one of these ceremonies. Well, you can imagine the early local church. The early church saying, well... <sighs> how do we do this? Okay, we're Christians now, so we don't worship these false gods. And, and false god ceremonies sound really wrong. Like, I don't think I'm supposed to be there. But what do we do with this food? I mean, at a local butcher shop. So some questions might come up. Let's say you're a Christian, you're a brand new follower of Jesus, and you get, you get invited with your neighbor who you've maybe been trying to witness to. You've been trying to share your faith about Jesus to them. And they say, hey, I've invited all my friends over to a big ceremony tonight. We're going to a local temple. I'm going to offer meat. Can you go, if you're a follower of Jesus, to his ceremony where that meat's being offered on the altar? And what does it mean if you say no? If you say, you know what, that's not something I can participate in. Do you now lose that relationship with that person? Okay, what if you say, you know what, I'm gonna be late. <laughs> I can't make the, I can't be at the ceremony part of it, but you're throwing a big party afterwards, right? Can I go be a part of the party? Can I just show up and have the meal with them? I'm sure they're gonna say some prayers that might not be everything I believe in, but can I at least sit down and just have a meal with my friends? After all, I wanna support them. Hmm, interesting. What if you're the butcher? You go to the butcher and, and you don't know, I mean, you gotta buy some meat, right? You, you gotta eat, 
and you're at the butcher shop and, and, and you're good friends with the butcher and, and you don't know, it's all mixed together, you don't know what's what. Can you buy the meat with a clear conscience? Just say, you know what, I don't know what was off to an idol, what wasn't, but let's just buy it. What if you're at the butcher and there's a big sign in the corner and it says, extra meat from Bob's ceremony last night, 25% off. Can you buy the extra meat that you know because it's been told to you, was particular meat that was offered to an idol. Hmm. Now again, this is all totally foreign to us. We don't deal with these kind of questions. But that, those principles of how, how, do, how do you even go about making these decisions? Where would you begin as a Christian? Right? Those are the kind of questions we need to ask. And that's what Paul is going to navigate for us today. How do you even begin thinking about these questions? Now, he, he lays out, there's two ways, in verses 1 to 3, there's two ways we could begin trying to navigate this. And he pits these two ideas against each other. One is the way of knowledge, and one is the way of love. And if, you, if you're a wise reader of verses 1 to 3, you can see that he's not exactly a, a fan of the knowledge way. So we have to figure out, what does he mean by knowledge and love? Look what he says. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's laying down this principle. It, it, okay, you're, you're trying to figure out food offered to idols. If you go about making this decision, which is a big decision for you, based on knowledge, you're going to make the wrong one because that ends up puffing you up. You, you think higher of yourself. You think less of other people. But if you're driven by an ethic of love, now you're going to start thinking the right way. Well, what's this knowledge he's talking about? Let's go the wrong route first, okay? What's the knowledge? He develops this idea of knowledge in the next few verses, verses four to six. Let's read this together. Verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, here's what we know, here's the knowledge that we have, we know that an idol has no real existence. Notice how that's in quotation marks. An idol has no real existence. He's quoting the arguments they made. They've been saying, we can go to the festival, we can go to the ceremony, why? Because we know. We know in our hearts an idol has no real existence. What else do they know? And that quote, there is no God but one. This is their knowledge. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods, he's not affirming uh, polytheism, he's just kind of making a sentiment here, as there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords in the, in the culture around us. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now what's going on here? Paul is quoting them and quoting the argument they're trying to make. They're trying to make the case, look, Paul, stop being such a, a party pooper, okay? We're just trying to have a meal with our friends who, by the way, we're trying to witness to. Let us go. Because you know what? When we go to the party, we know. We know that there's no God there. We know it's just a statue of wood. We know that that's a, that, that meat's being offered to a false God. We only worship the one true God. So based on our knowledge of what we know, we're just eating a meal with our friends. We're just showing up for our buddies. We're just buying meat at the butcher shop. And Paul is laying out this principle here. He says, look, we have to operate when it comes to our worship of God and our witness to the world around us off of a different principle than simply what we know. Why? Because we don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in a vacuum. 
He is affirming that their knowledge is correct. They believe in the one true God. In fact, verses, verse 6 has this beautiful Trinitarian language in it. If you, you can dig in that on your own time and see that he is making a case that Jesus is Lord. He's the second person of the Trinity, and he's saying, you got it. You have good Trinitarian theology, and I affirm that in you. Your knowledge, in a sense, is correct, and yet it's driving you to the wrong ethical decisions. You're trying to, to, to defend idolatry. He says there's a different ethic that should drive you. Now, what's this ethic that should drive us? The ethic that should drive us is love, is love, and a desperate desire to honor God and to see others around us built up in Jesus Christ. Love has to drive us. And for us as 21st century Christians, love has to drive us. We can't just work off knowledge. We've got to be driven by love. Now, what does love mean? Because here's the problem with the word love. Our culture has hijacked the term love to make it mean something mushy and gushy that it doesn't mean. Love is defined in scripture and has bounds on it. And there is a way to actually do something in the name of love that's actually the antithesis of love. So let's get some definition on this. Verses 7 through 13, the end of chapter 8. However, not all possess this knowledge. Notice the however. You're being driven by knowledge. However... There's a different thing going on. Not all possess this knowledge that you have, Corinthians. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as if it was really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do, if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Why? For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. That's big language. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, listen to this, you sin against Christ. Therefore, here's my application, says Paul. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Notice how, how far he's willing to take this principle. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Whew. Okay. He begins with, however, 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 the knowledge principle is not the only thing driving us. There's something else. And he brings up this weaker brother scenario. Now, what is the weaker brother? The weaker brother in this instance is not somehow a second-tier Christian. He's not uh, weaker in the sense of his faith is not as important. In my opinion, I think the weaker brother is referring, in this case, to newer followers of Jesus. Let me give you some scenarios of how this might have played out in first century Corinth, and then I'll give you a scenario of how it played out in my own life, okay? The younger believer. Imagine for a moment, you're a more mature believer. Someone who you've been walking with Jesus for a little bit, you're plugged into the church, okay? You're supposed to be someone that others in the church see as someone who, who has some maturity underneath their legs. And you get invited by your neighbor to a, a pagan sacrifice, and you say, you know what, I can't go to the, the actual idol ceremony, but yeah, I'm going to show up for dinner with you, okay? I'm going to show up for dinner. Let's sit around the dinner and just eat the meat together. 
you sit down, and between you and God, you know the prayers they're praying, what everyone else thinks is going on, doesn't really count because there's only one true God, but you're just there to support your friend. You don't know, down the, down the end of the table is a new person to your church. They've just put their faith in Jesus. They've come out of idolatry, and they're, they're going through a really hard time because, because their new faith in Jesus, their relationship with their parents has been broken a little bit because the parents are like, what has happened to you? Their, their relationship with some of their friends, and they have been trembling about this decision of whether or not to go to this ceremony because they're, they're just broken over it. They're already hurting some relationships. They don't want to hurt their relationship with their friend. What do they do? They've been working through it all week, and they say, you know what? I'm just going to go, but they're sitting at the table worried about it, and then they see you. Well, and they've seen you. They've seen you collect the offering at church. They've seen you work in the, the guest services table. They've seen you do a bunch of stuff at church. And they say, oh, that guy, he, he, he's supposed to be a follower of Christ. And they look at you, and you don't seem to have a care in the world about it. You're eating the meat. You're hearing them pray. You're not saying anything about the prayers that are being said. And so what's being formed in this newer Christian? This newer Christian's sitting over here going, oh, I guess it's not that big a deal. And now their inner conscience, which was actually the right thing. God was doing something in them. This is idolatry. You should not be here. Now it's weakened and wounded because of your presence at that ceremony. Let me give you another scenario. How about it's not a weaker brother? Now, I think this is referring particularly to, to weaker followers of Christ, newer followers of Christ. What if it's a non-believer that's there, but... Someone at your church has been witnessing to them for many months, and they're on the verge of accepting Jesus. You've been working on them. You've been revealing to them the, the inadequacy and the absurdity of polytheism and how these Corinthian gods really are no gods at all, but there's one true God that knows them and loves them, and you want to call them out of idolatry into worship of the one true God, and they get invited, and just they, they would have always gone to this ceremony, but something inside of them is stirring, and then they see a Christian there, and they say, oh, I guess this isn't a big deal to Christians. I guess you can worship the God of the Bible and worship false gods at the same time. You never said those words. You never said it, but you showed up for the meal. And because your presence there communicated that you affirmed the values of that meal, now the person who is walking towards Jesus all of a sudden is taking a detour. Let me give you a practical example from my life as a bit of a confession, okay? I came to faith in Jesus when I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school, and I don't know the exact day, but it was somewhere between 17 and 18 when I was a freshman in college. I got to my, my freshman in college year, and frankly, college for me was getting a business degree. I was in corporate America before I became a pastor. So part, part of this was um, a, a getting a business degree, but the other part was learning about Jesus because I really knew nothing. I got to college, and I was a blank slate, there was a ton of sin in my life that I had very little conviction over. And one of them, when I got to college, was drinking and drunkenness. There was a, I was a new follower of Jesus. There was a slight conviction knowing this was wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. I just put my faith in Jesus. But it wasn't enough to change my behavior. It was growing, and I was in sin. By God's grace, I believed I was saved despite my sin, but my conscience was being developed on these areas, and I was very weak. Now, imagine me. I've been getting plugged into Campus Crusade in college, and, and the conscience is beginning to develop, and I go to a party, and I, I actually, I do feel guilty over it, but you know what? I, I'm not resolved enough to stop my sinful behavior, so I take my drink, 
And I look down the hall over here, and at that same party is someone who's a leader in Campus Crusade. And they're having a party with everybody else. And they're drinking just like everybody else. Now here's newer Rafe, whose conscience is beginning to work on him. I see someone who I really respect and admire, who's a few years ahead of me, over here having a drink with everybody else. What's going to happen in young Rafe's heart? I'm going to say, okay, well, I suppose it's not as big a deal as I've been putting on myself. I suppose this isn't something I really need to work on as hard as I thought I needed to. See, this is the same thing. We're dealing with the same issues. It's just in different practical ways. What do we do with the ways we used to behave? This is a collision of Christ and culture. Now, what's really fascinating about chapter 8, about chapter 8, is this. Paul actually will get to the law. But in chapter 8, he's not trying to lay the law down. And this is important for us to realize the meaning of this chapter. What's the law? In chapter 10, and we'll develop this much more in five weeks, okay? We're going to get to chapter 10 in five weeks. In chapter 10, he really lays down the law. Let me read to you a few verses. Chapter 10, verse 28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Okay, what's the practical application? What's the law? You go to, you go to the butcher, there's a big sign there that says Bob's Discount Meat from the, from, the, from the sacrifice last night, 25% off. Can you buy the meat that you know was offered to an idol? No. You are not permitted as a Christian to buy meat that was offered to an idol. Forbidden. Now here's the thing. You know what Christians don't like to hear? No. Just like my kids. Why is that? We have been pushing as a modern evangelical church grace, grace, grace. And you will hear me every week from this pulpit push something. Grace, grace, grace. That's what I push. There's one message every preacher has. It's grace upon grace for sinners like us. You're going to get that message from me today. Grace, grace. But one of the ways we've wrongly applied the message of grace in the New Testament modern church is that we've forgotten that God's law is very important and that he says no to a lot of things. And one of the ways we live out grace upon grace is by obeying God's laws. Can you buy the meat? No. Verse 20 to 21, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. We're going to develop our demonology in chapter 10 a little bit. And not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord. That's what we're going to celebrate after church today, if you're a Christian. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Okay, Christian. So you skip the sacrifice. You're not going to go to the actual. You're not going to go to the actual ceremony, but it's just a meal. Can you go to the meal? Not if you're planning on taking this meal. You can't. You can't do them both. Okay, what can you do? Verse twenty-five: Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. You're at the butcher. There's no signs up. In the back of your mind, some of it might have been offered to an idol at some point. Some of it might not have. Do you have to inquire which meat was made to an idol, which one doesn't? If you don't know, can you just have a clear conscience and buy? Yes, you can. Buy the food. You know, you, you're, you know who God is. You have right knowledge with God. There's no conviction here. You don't know what was off to an idol, what wasn't. You have a clear conscience. Buy your meat. You're a follower of Christ. Food's available to you. But as soon as you know, you cannot, you cannot buy it anymore because your conscience will, will, approve, will prove you guilty. Now, why do I say all of this and steal my thunder from chapter 10 up front? 
Because in chapter eight, he's trying to drive a different ethic and trying to form something different in his listeners than here's the law. He saves the law for chapter 10. Right now, he's trying to develop this sense of something else should be driving me than what does the law say? And the sense that should be driving them is you need to have, follower of Jesus, a desperate desire in your heart to so love people that anything, anything that has a sense of idol practice or something that will derail a weaker believer's faith in Jesus and cause them to stumble or to sin in any way, you will not participate in that. You will not be a part of that because your desire is to love them and see them lifted up in Jesus. And your desire is to love non-believers so much that you don't confuse them of what a follower of Christ is all about, worshiping the one true God. You see that? So the ethic Paul is trying to, 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 to develop here is love and not knowledge. It's not just what's the law. It's how do I love my brother? How do I love my sister? He's like a father that's trying to tenderly, rather than just saying, here's what you can't do, kid. He's trying to say, look, I want you to see why my laws are so important. I want you to understand the heart behind this so, so that you can develop the same heart I have. That's his methodology in chapter 8. Paul's conclusion in verse 13 is, is so beautiful. Listen to this. He says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. What does he say? Does Paul love good meat? Yeah, you, you bet. Paul loves a good hamburger or whatever it is that, that they ate back then. But, but, but he is willing to go without the things he likes, knowing that, that it's not an affront to God if he eats the hamburger just plainly, but knowing that in certain situations, eating that particular meal would totally derail other people's faith. And so he's going to choose to go without in order that others will be lifted up in Christ. Now, why would he do such a thing? Because this is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. See, this is, this is where our ethic gets all of its driving power and force from. What Christ has done for us is that he went without in order that we could be built up properly. Jesus Christ, who was Christ? He was the second person in the Trinity. He was God. He had all the glory. He, he, he's, he was the creator. John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh. Jesus was God, second person in the Trinity. He became flesh, and then Philippians chapter two says that he emptied himself. That doesn't mean that he stopped being God, but it means in his humanity, he took on flesh and limited himself. He experienced blood and sweat and tears. He went without the freedom he had as the second person of the Trinity by limiting himself, taking on the form of a human being and suffering underneath the consequences of death. Jesus went all the way. He went underneath the wrath of God for you and me, taking your place underneath the judgment of God. What, now, now, how does this change us? Look, as Christians, our love, everything about us is driven by a worship of the one true God. We don't trifle. We don't play with Jesus. We don't just borrow a little Jesus when he's convenient. We don't say, yeah, he's my get-out-of-jail-free card. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that has to change everything about you. Now, now you have a new Lord, and he defines how you engage with life around you. And it's this growing process. But over time, there's deeper and deeper agony in your soul. This is what I've experienced as a Christian. There's an agony in your soul over the false worship practices of culture around us. 
which started for me when I was 17 and 18, almost as a joke, seeing, yeah, I know culture doesn't quite get it, but I'm called to something different. Now, 20 years later, is just this agony of looking out over the pagan practices of Chicago and saying, I don't hate that because of the persecution that comes my way for standing for Christ. That's secondary. I hate it because it's an affront to my king. My king who went to the cross for me. My king who went through death for me that I could be in relationship with God. See, that's the Jesus I worship. And it's the Jesus you're invited to worship as well. In that way, to love Jesus so much that anything that reeks of false worship, you don't want anything to do with. Now, let's bring this to our 21st century culture. How do we, living in a polytheistic modern Corinth, navigate these principles? A desperate desire to worship Jesus and a desperate desire to form Christ in others, to to, to drive our decision-making. Hopefully, as I've been preaching on their first century context, you've already been applying this. So before I even give you some ideas here, I just want you to say the way the Spirit of God works is he's probably bringing conviction on particular issues before I even say them into your own heart. And so your big takeaway today is not the particular practicals I'm gonna walk through, it's whatever Jesus is putting on your heart because that's the work you gotta do with God. And Praise God, the Holy Spirit is alive and at work and working in our hearts in individual ways so that, because it's a living relationship with the Holy God. Listen to that. Do not leave today not listening to that conviction. We live in a polytheistic culture, just like Corinth. It's all over the place. You can walk down the street from here within one mile. You can find a mosque. You can find a number of Buddhist temples. You can find palm readers and psychics. This is not hard. Now, here's the thing. This polytheism, just like in first century, has become commonplace. We walk by these things without thinking twice about it. It's just commonplace. But have you ever stopped to think about it? Have you ever stopped and grieved when you've walked by a psychic, psychic's building, and thought, what an affront to the glory of my king. Jesus, would you tear this place down and turn it into a church? And would you win that palm reader or whatever it is to Jesus so that they can worship the one? Has that burdened your soul? Has it? See, see the, the, until it burdens your soul, the practical issues are, are gonna feel like burdens to carry. It's gotta start with a burden. It's gotta start with a, a practical burden. Now, there's two ways to, to, to get this wrong. On the one hand, there's two ways Christians can get this wrong. We're dealing with Christ and culture, a collision of two value systems. On the one hand, Christians can can separate themselves. It's called separatism. On the other hand, we can syncretize ourselves. Syncretism. Separatism and syncretism. Separatism would be modeled by people like the Amish or the Mennonites, right? Some of you may have come from a background not too far off from the Amish or the Mennonites. In fact, I know some of you did. And what they do is, is they see Christ and culture and they say, okay, Christians can have nothing to do with culture around us. So we have to remove ourselves completely and do it all our own way. Is that what Christians are called to? I don't actually think so. I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Why? Well, because Paul says in this passage, go to the butcher and you can buy the meat with a clear conscience. He said, look, live in the city, buy the meat. Paul lived in the city. He lived in Corinth for a long time. The church was in the city. So I don't think the biblical model for us is separatism. In fact, he validates the opposite of that very often. What about syncretism? Syncretism is where Christians just try to blend in, right? Just tie your shoe. <laughs> Go through the motions. 
Look like everybody else. Let your Christian faith just be about the heart. It's just between you and God. You're good. You can go through everything as long as your heart's right with God. That's not the issue either. There's some laws here that we are not supposed to participate in pagan practices. Okay. Well, let's get some specifics here. I'm going to call out a couple specifics that people will not like. And uh, if, if people are watching online, they might not like. But I think these are very relevant. And, uh, there's, and in these, you're going to have a lot of questions that I, I don't have time to do a full sermon on. But what I want you to do is reflect, is this a possible application of the text today? Let me give you two practical ones. Yoga. Okay. Now, if you're at this church and you read my weekly email, you know I wrote a blog post on this a few weeks ago, <laughs> and I gave some instruction on yoga. Now, why yoga? Many of you, yoga's out of sight, out of mind. It's not a thing you deal with on a day-to-day basis. Some of you are regularly a part of yoga studios. And some of you, also, your companies or your schools where you work at have brought yoga into the, into the, the place because, for example, in CPS, yoga's brought into the school systems to calm our children down. What do Christians do with yoga? Can we, can we participate in yoga? Well, how would we go about thinking about that? This, by the way, I'm, this is not a sermon about yoga. I'm just trying to draw a practical principle out for us. Because the way we get sensitive about yoga, and my next one, is the way they would have gotten sensitive about food offered to idols. It's the same thing. They're like, it's not that big a deal. It's a big deal. What, what do the yogis say yoga is about? Well, yogis say this. Yoga means to know the union of existence by experience. When you know the oneness of existence, can you see the pagan value system here? This is not Christian language. Oneness of existence, no. Oneness of existence, like you experience the five fingers of your hand, then we say you are in yoga. It's this oneness with the universe, with the divine unity of the universe. What yoga means is to move towards an experiential reality where one knows the ultimate nature of the existence the way it is made. Okay, the ultimate nature of existence, the way it is made, is through Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe. That is how it was made. Anything that brings us away from him is false worship. The yogi goes on, he says this, its aim is to reorient the mind, connect a person with a universal consciousness. That should trigger something not right with you right now. A universal consciousness is Eastern pagan language for worship of false gods. Assist a person in feeling the energy in the universe... Uh, uh, uh. We don't like that language. That's not Christian language. And overall, provide a new philosophy of life of union and oneness with the cosmos around you. We do not want union and oneness with the cosmos around us. We want union and oneness with our, with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, what do a lot of folks do? Because when I wrote the blog, and this is not to pick on anybody, but I had a lot of feedback. And the feedback sounded something like this. Can't I go to the yoga studio... And even though I'm not worshiping the false gods of yoga, can I just go through the motions? Can I just tie my shoe? See, my friends in Thailand were asking the exact same questions that we're answering, asking. The same ones. And we're asking the exact same questions that the Christians in Corinth asked in the first century. And what's the answer? Well, it depends how you're going to try to answer the question. If it's based off of just knowledge, sure. <laughs> in a sense, depending, no, you can't go to the yoga studio, but you know what the one true God is. 
But that's not your drive. See, chapter eight says, you are driven by a desperate desire to lift everyone up around you in Christ, to see everyone around you, including that yoga instructor, know there is one true God, and it's not the universal cosmos, that's for sure. And so your desire is to not do anything that would cause them to stumble because you don't know what God's doing in that person's life. And so if yoga causes someone to stumble, I will never do yoga. Do you see that? Do you see applying this principle? Let me give us another one even more controversial. And again, I, I'm calling this one out probably because as I was preaching this, you were sensing this already with the language. What do you do with LGBTQ marriages? Hmm. Now, the Bible, we unapologetically preach the Bible. God has a beautiful, wonderful vision for marriage, and it is between one man and one woman for life in the covenant of marriage. Okay? Now, what a lot of folks do, I have wrestled with our body, with many of you, with how do you handle this? Can you go to the ceremony? Can you go to the dinner afterwards? It's the same questions in a different application. What do you, how, well, what's driving your decision making? Is it, a, is it a desperate desire for everyone around you to know and love the one true God? See, if that's your ethic, if that's what you're thinking, that helps navigate a lot of these questions. It, it totally helps answer it. If you're driven off knowledge, you get very confused because you know it's not right, but you want to support your friend. and It's just a meal. Can't you just be there and just, you know, they're going to say some prayers, but it's not... If it's just knowledge, it'll confuse you. But if your desperate desire is to see Jesus magnified and your friend lifted up, that will change the way you think about these things. That's chapter eight. That's today's message. Now you can apply this in a thousand ways. I picked two controversial ones. And the reason I picked controversial ones is because Paul's chapter eight would have been so controversial in in his day. So I had to pick something that was legitimately controversial. What do you do with holidays that you used to celebrate? What do you do with the clothes you used to wear? What do you do with the concerts you used to go to and the, the, the albums you used to listen to? The, the list of what you could apply this to, it, it's endless. And here's the big question I want us to ask today as we leave. Is your conscience pricked over any of this? I think, there, I think at some point, Christians need to have a, a wake-up call to say that we have, perhaps unintentionally, but carelessly, permitted a it's okay mentality for the idolatrous pagan practices happening around us. And to just say, it's someone else's battle, it's not mine, I'm sure the pastor's thinking about it, I I need to live, I need to buy meat. (laughs) So just go through my day and just, does it bother you? That the name of Jesus is defaced every time a false god is worshipped? Does it make your heart cringe, church? And if the answer is it doesn't really bother me, can I call you to something higher today? There is a God who's worthy of every bit of your life. He's the God of these scriptures. And he has invited you to more than to walk by idolatry and to care less about it. He's invited you into a place of love and worship of God. Not to separate yourself from pagan practice, but to immerse yourself in a city like this. And to say, how do I live this ethic everywhere I go? I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to mess it up. We can all look back and say, we got this wrong. Praise God 
there's mercy for sinners like us who get this wrong all the time. Jesus went to the cross for Christians who sometimes lack zeal, who sometimes make unwise decisions, who sometimes don't even know what they should be guilty or feel guilt about. Praise God there's forgiveness. But at some point we have to say, is my conscience pricked about this? Am I trying to love my neighbor well? At the end of the day, Christians need to be driven by a deep desire because of what Christ has done for us, because he's modeled this, to lift everyone up in Christ around us. What's Christ putting on your heart today? Where's the Holy Spirit stirring? That's the place I want to push you into as you leave here today. Will you pray with me? Lord, um, we come before you right now, and we acknowledge that this is kind of heavy stuff, and we're going to be in it for a few more weeks. Lord, there is a tension we have with not wanting to stir the pot, so to speak, with our friends and neighbors over our Christianity. And that is an illusion of attention that I don't think the first century Christians necessarily were being called to, to hold. The tension is not how do we not stir the pot. The tension is how do we worship Christ well. And Jesus, I pray that you would lead us as a church to make wise decisions I pray that you would lead us as we walk out of here, Holy Spirit, to sense when you are calling us to something different and to be marked as peculiar for the sake of Christ. The peculiar fragrance, the peculiar aroma of Christ followers among the nations. Jesus, we love you. We ask for your help in this. In Christ's name, amen.